You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 24. Looking at the stars. Welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison, and I'm recording this from prison. You see, I received this voicemail from IRS Internal Revenue Service. Hello. This call is officially a final notice from IRS Internal Revenue Service. The reason of this call is to inform you that IRS is filling a lawsuit on your name because... You had tried to do a fraud with the IRS, Internal Revenue Service, and we are taking a legal action, and we are issuing an arrest warrant on your name. To get more information regarding this case file, just call us back on our department number. As you can tell from that recording, having done a fraud has landed me in hot water, apparently. Oh well, I had a good run on the outside. Anyway... Let's talk about today's show. It's a good one. When we were at Denver Zine Fest a little while back, we set up a little booth for people to record their stories, thoughts, and poetry. We're going to hear a few of those. And we're going to hear a song from the band Marcus Church. And finally, author Jason Heller stopped by the studio, sure, to do a reading from his new book, Strange Stars. Before we begin that, though, here's a couple of things. If you're interested in contacting the show or finding us on social media... You can go over to Facebook at facebook.com slash Denver Orbit and Instagram. Yes, Instagram at Denver Orbit. And if you visit that Instagram page, you'll find a garden of strange nonsense. Here's a question. Are you interested in supporting the show? Well, you can without spending a penny. Just go to whatever podcast app you're using and rate and review the show. It'll increase the visibility of the show, which in turn will help reach other creative folks in the city, which we can then bring those voices back to you. It's the circle of life. In a podcast. So let's go ahead and get started with today's show. First up are a handful of things recorded from the Denver Zine Fest, as mentioned. The Zine Fest was amazing. The other vendors were amazing as well. We had more people participate in our little project than I thought we would, so that was kind of fun too. So let's start with a sample of some of those things we recorded. Shannon Geis was our producer. We'll begin with a story from Jordan Connect about how he got to the Zine Fest. Just a heads up, there's a little crowd noise throughout all of this, but it's not so bad. So when I was trying, I was, I didn't want to go to college, but my parents said, hey, you have the opportunity to go to college. You should at least go look at colleges. And we made this deal where I would go to college, but I would take a year off before. And while I was looking at colleges in high school, I was in Boston. For some reason, I arbitrarily wanted to go to school in Boston. I grew up in St. Louis, and Boston seemed like a, a stark um, difference. So I, I was in Boston, and I actually didn't look at any schools there, but I 
got a phone call from my dad and said, hey, I got you this train ticket to go to a little town in western Massachusetts. So I hopped on a train to go look at this school. And I didn't like Boston. I didn't look at schools because I knew I didn't like the culture. Everyone kept trying to fight me, which was really um, a new thing. I didn't grow up fighting, and everyone just everyone was very aggressive in, in this town. So I went to Western Mass. I got off the train, and this guy drives up in his minivan and just starts yelling at me. And I assumed, oh, this is just what all of Massachusetts was like. It was kind of like a new country entirely to me. But I look over and it's actually this guy, Jesse, that I knew from St. Louis growing up. And he's yelling, stay at my house, stay at my house. And so I ended up not going to the admissions tour at the college, but I stayed at his house and I learned how to weld and I had psychedelic music jams with people. And it was a really great experience. Um, however, I skipped my train back to Boston so a few days later, I was trying to find a ride back, and it was spring break for all the students. So I had been going around just giving out my name and number to anyone who was driving to Boston. And on the last day, I was started. it was started to snow, and I just decided I wasn't going to get a ride. So I was getting back on this bus to go back to the train so I could buy a ticket so I could go back to Boston. And as I sat on the bus to go to the train station, I got a phone call from someone and they said, hey, do you still want to get a ride? And I said, yes, please. So I hopped off the bus as it was taking off and about an hour later I was driving in a blizzard with these two women, one of whom was going back to Germany to visit her family. And it took us five hours for what should have been an hour and a half long drive. And we got to know each other pretty well just from making small talk. Um, and then we parted ways and kind of said, see you never. And that was that. I ended up going to that college, but those people had graduated by the time I'd gone. It was called Hampshire College. And that it was probably three years later that I was attending the school. And in that summer, I went to Asheville, North Carolina to house it for my uncle because him and his family went on vacation. And there's an evening, I spent most of the trip just driving around by myself on the Blue Ridge Highway, like sitting in trees, reading books, and going hiking and stuff. But one night I wanted to go see this guitarist that I knew who played in a band in Asheville. But I was under 21 at the time, and the bar wouldn't let me in. It was like this little bar slash art gallery. But it, I, I convinced them, because it was a small town, I was like, hey, just put X's on my hands, then if I go to the bar, they'll know that I'm the only one who's not 21. They won't sell me alcohol. Don't worry about it. And they let me in, and I was sitting there talking to this woman um, in between sets, and we were just shooting the shit, talking about, like, what are, you, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And she said that she was at this place called Penland School of Crafts, and she was learning letterpress printing with her friend. And her friend came and sat next to me, and we were talking, and she said, what do you do? or whatever that question is, and I said, well, I go to Hampshire College, I'm on vacation from my first year of school. She said, wow, I'm an alumni. And I looked over, and it clicked, and I asked, are you the person who drove me to Boston in a blizzard three years ago? 
And she said, well, yes, I am. Nice to see you again. And she snuck me into Penland School of Crafts the next night and taught me letterpress printing on this little proof press and then told me to go work with this guy, Barry Moser, at school, who now, he's like a world-renowned bookmaker, um, type designer, book designer. He redesigned the Bible, and it was funded by the guy who invented the hedge fund. He like redesigned, oh, the person who made like the typeface for Time, uh, New York Times made the typeface for his Bible. He's like a big deal, but he's also this humble Southern man who cusses like a sailor, and is just really tender, really down to earth. Um, but she said, you gotta go work with Barry Moser, who now we both know as Bubba. And that meeting with her, the concert that I shouldn't have been allowed into, changed the trajectory of my life by introducing me to this man who then introduced me to publishing and bookbinding, which is why I'm here at Denver Zine Fest today as a book publisher. Um, which is a cool thing that I owe to both her and him. Um, and then to cap off the story, I wrote this really nice letter to Penland about how my experience there changed my life. And they never responded because I found out later that they are very unhappy about people unauthorized who are using their equipment and their facilities. So I never heard from them, and I don't dare show my face there ever again. And finally, Daisy Corso and a friend told this story. So, my name is Daisy Corso. I am here with Jim Cliff. Yes. <laughs> um, we've known each other for like... 10 ish years. 30 sure. years, 10 years. Going on 40. And um, a couple weeks ago, we went out, grabbed some lunch, dinner, dinner, and we were on our way back. We were walking. Crossing the street. 17th. <laughs> um, There's a sidewalk. Closer to like 17th and Parkish, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and oh gosh. <laughs> There was a couple in front of us that we were quickly approaching as we were walking with great speed. They were walking slower and... Less cautiously. <laughs> right. We were crossing the street that they already crossed. And um, this woman, um, she just... She fell really hard. And it was not <laughs> funny at all. <laughs> to me. Oh, God. It was, it was not oh, funny. It was... I was... <laughs> Afraid and fearful. She bounced right back up like a goddamn balloon. She bounced directly back onto her feet like nothing happened. Like, like just before her partner could even respond, her she was on her even feet. Turn around by the time that she was already up, and she and I continued following out of concern to make sure that she was okay. Right, but I couldn't breathe. And I, I turned to and Daisy. She and she was oh, gone. She, she had turned down the side street <laughs> to hide. I couldn't breathe. I was laughing way too hard. And not, not at the fact that, you know, she may have hurt herself, but just the sheer talent it takes to get back up from that kind of fall. That, that bounce. Oh my God. And I couldn't breathe and I was laughing so hard in my bowels. <laughs> I farted. 
And that was the first time I heard Daisy fart. <laughs> and like, I really, I just didn't know what to do with myself. So I just went to the ground similar to how this all started. <sighs> and it's still funny to you now. <laughs> I still can't breathe. I still have the need to fart when I think about it. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> This is it, what? Lucini pouring from the sky, let's get rich, what? The Jiki Vons and Sugar Dons can't quit, what? Now pop the crocus in the Vega and get and that's it for now from the Zine Fest. We've got more, which we'll put into a later episode in the future. Thanks again to Shannon for producing that segment as well. Remember, if you have a story, song, art project, secret recipe, box full of old tapes you found, a song, a poem, drop us a line at denverorbit at gmail.com. And of course, you can reach us on any of those Facebook and Instagram pages as well. Up next is another band sent my way from Claudia Woodman, so thanks again to Claudia. This is a local Denver band called Marcus Church. The song is called Tonight. Go by.
Marcus Church is a Denver-based indie rock outfit comprised of Dustin Hobble on guitar and vocals, Joe Mills on bass, and Alex Amalenki on drums. This lineup has been together since 2016. The group has released 2008's The Marcus Church Story, 2011's Minutia EP, and various singles, including the newest, Tonight, backed with Metastatic. More new music is coming soon, and you can find more of them at marcuschurch.bandcamp.com and facebook.com slash marcuschurchmusic, and of course we'll have links for that in the show description. Finally today, something I'm super excited about. I met Jason Heller recently at the Tattered Cover. He was kicking off his book tour for his excellent new book, Strange Stars. Strange Stars is a book about the weird and wild story of when rock and roll met the sci-fi world of the 1970s. So without further ado, here's Jason with a reading from that book. My name is Jason Heller, and I'm going to be reading from my new book, Strange Stars, David Bowie, Pop Music, and the Decade Sci-Fi Exploded, which is about science fiction's influence on the music of the 70s, starting with David Bowie and continuing through artists like Rush, Hawkwind, Parliament Funkadelic, and Devo. Devo is the band that I'm going to be reading about. This is from a chapter in Strange Stars where I talk about Devo's creation Uh, the way they related and expressed science fiction in a unique way, and their connection to David Bowie. There's one band that I can mention. I like them very much indeed, David Bowie said in early 1978, when asked if he was fishing around for any new musical collaborators. They're an unrecorded band in America called Devo. I've been listening to them for a long time since they sent me their tapes, and I hope if I have the time at the end of the year to record them. Bowie was already busy enough without taking a new unknown group under his wing. He was in the midst of making his second feature film as the star attraction, the ill-fated World War I period piece Just a Gigolo. He didn't release an album in 1978, but he had just come off the frenzy of activity with Brian Eno that had yielded low and heroes. Basking in the buzz of a revitalized career, both critically and commercially, He had pushed pop music to the bleeding edge of emerging technology and avant-garde futurism, and not only survived, but thrived. No wonder he noticed kindred spirits in Devo. The group came together in 1973 around core members Gerald Casale and Mark Mothersbaugh, former students at Kent State University in Ohio. Both had been protesting the Vietnam War on the morning of May 4, 1970, when the National Guard opened fire and killed four young demonstrators. Soured on the peace and love ideal, Mother's Baugh began playing in a progressive rock cover band that specialized in the sci-fi rock of Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. He had long hair down to his waist and a stack of keyboards, Casale recalled. Devo, though, were a sharp departure from that. Rather than luxuriate in the ornate arrangements and pomp of progressive rock, Devo forged a kind of future primitivism. Picking through pop culture like post-apocalyptic scavengers in a junkyard, they cobbled together electronic equipment and a rudimentary palette of inhuman sounds. 
Mother's Baugh's brothers, Jim and Bob, as well as Casale's brother, also named Bob, soon joined the band, turning it into a clannish kind of experimental hive. Jim soon left to become an inventor. Before he did, he created his own electronic drum kit with pieces of an acoustic set, guitar pickups, and effects pedals. It sounded really amazing, Mother's Boss said, like a walking, broken-down robot. You must use technology or else it uses you, vowed an unidentified member of Devo in a 1978 interview. They were being interviewed collectively, as if plugged into a single brain. It's a hippie, kind of asshole mentality to be afraid of technology as if it's some kind of separate entity. You see, technology allows you to be more primitive. As Casale summed up, we wanted to make outer space caveman music, paralleling David Brock's claim that he wanted his role in the band Hawkwind to be that of a barbarian with the machines. But unlike Hawkwind, admired by science fiction author Michael Moorcock for being neither self-conscious nor pseudo-intellectual, Devo were acutely and conceptually aware. They drew from the reality-warping science fiction of William S. Burroughs and Philip K. Dick and coined a loose theory dubbed de-evolution. According to the theory, humanity had reached the pinnacle of its possible evolution. From there, it was all downhill. But unlike the hordes of science fiction alarmists in pop music throughout the decade, Devo did not flinch in the face of humankind's catastrophic decline in the technological age. With bleak humor, they cheered it on, and sought to be its personification. De-Evolution was a combination of a Wonder Woman comic book and the movie Island of Lost Souls, Casale said, citing the 1932 adaptation of H.G. Wells's 1896 sci-fi novel The Island of Dr. Moreau. In it, the titular doctor performs genetic experiments on his victims, fusing them with animals. Devo's pop culture scavenging reflected their yen for kitsch, which was what most sci-fi circa 1978 was considered by the public at large. Star Wars had made science fiction immeasurably popular the year before, but it hadn't changed the widespread view that most of the existing sci-fi canon was trash watched by weirdos and marked by cheap production values, corny dialogue, and passe predictions. Sci-fi literature barely registered with the public, except as pulp. For Devo, as with their contemporaries in Chrome, sci-fi was the richest mulch from which to grow their mutant music, a brave new noise in the ruins of tomorrow. One of Devo's first songs was Mechanical Man. First recorded as a demo in 1974, it sounded like nothing else at the time. As raw, crude, and awkward as a malfunctioning hunk of clockwork, the track shambled along with a jerky, disjointed locomotion. I'm a mechanical man, two mechanical arms, two mechanical legs, go the lyrics filtered emotionlessly through dehumanizing electronic modulation. It's likely that Mechanical Man was on the demo tape Devo sent to David Bowie. It was also released on the Mechanical Man EP in 1978, which included the unlisted song Space Girl Blues, an android-like plea for satisfaction that went, 
I want your mechanism. Give me your mechanism. Not that Devo had been waiting around to be plucked from obscurity by some superstar like Bowie. Headquartered in Akron, Ohio, the group chugged along under its own power, playing whatever odd shows they could muster and confounding audiences along the way. Akron was, according to Casale, in the center of the most highly industrialized part of the United States. It's hilly, gray, like culturally stripped, as if to justify Devo's equally colorless and industrial sound. Devo wasn't the only band in Ohio mining a similar vein at the time. In nearby Cleveland, Para Ubu were using synthesizers and atonality in a distressing exhibition of technological unease. But it was Devo who were chosen to open for no less a luminary than jazz band leader Sun Ra at a venue called The Crypt in Akron in 1975. This meeting of two titans of 70s sci-fi music, Sun Ra and Devo, was less than auspicious. Although both existed on the fringes of pop culture, they fell on opposite ends of that spectrum. Where Sun Ra was lush and exultant, Devo were minimalistic and hermetic. Sun Ra's province was the cosmos, Devo's was the atom. Inevitably, Devo alienated Sun Ra's audience, who cleared the club during their robotic, apocalyptic performance. Casale, also an aspiring filmmaker, wanted to direct, in his words, an anti-capitalist science fiction movie in 1975. Instead, Devo wound up making a short film titled The Truth About De-Evolution that year. Although not science fiction, it drove home Devo's theoretical points in an utterly surreal way, including bizarre masks and costumes, a hallmark of their stage act that would come to define them. Casale described it as a sort of collage indoctrination to de-evolution. It is self-referential. In other words, it doesn't depend on anything outside of itself to exist. It's logical within itself. The music magazine Melody Maker referred to it as a mutated hybrid of Planet of the Apes and Dr. Strangelove filtered through a sort of Mekon chromosome, invoking the alien nemesis of the comic book space hero Dan Dare. By the time Bowie started trumpeting Devo's merits in 1978, calling them the band of the future, and describing them glowingly as sort of like three Enos and a couple of Edgar Froses of Tangerine Dream in one band, their debut album was on the way. The group's first single, Jocko Homo, came out in England early that year, and it cribbed some of Bella Lugosi's lines from Island of Lost Souls. Those paraphrased lines became the title of the album, Q, Are We Not Men? A, We Are Devo. Released in the summer of 1978, it was a tense, choppy spasm of stinging guitar, stabbing ARP synthesizer, geometrical beats, and monotone bleats of lust, angst, doubt, humor, ire, and sci-fi disillusionment cloaked in fun. The most telling song was Space Junk. It's about a torrential downpour of metal from artificial satellites whose orbits have decayed over Earth, randomly hitting and killing people, including the narrator's beloved Sally. She never saw it when she was hit by space junk, go the lyrics. 
At least, they're presumably satellites. For all the listener knew, those chunks of debris could have been the spacecraft of Major Tom, Thomas Jerome Newton, or any other doomed space traveler portrayed by David Bowie. Devo had made no secret of their affinity for sci-fi trash in the kitsch sense. Here they openly sang of sci-fi trash in the literal sense. Catchy in a way that graded against such morbid subject matter, Space Junk also exemplified Devo's shift from an abrasive experimental group to a pop band, albeit a bizarre one. Their onstage uniforms grew stranger, eventually reaching an apex with their signature yellow jumpsuits, almost resembling biohazard gear, topped with their iconic red helmets, mysterious ziggurats that accented the band's plastic, prefabricated aesthetic. Space Junk was also the one song on the album that Brian Eno played on, contributing synthesizer and distorted vocals. He, along with Bowie, co-produced Q Are We Not Men, with Eno doing the lion's share of the duties. It was recorded in Germany at the studio of Connie Plank, where so many landmark Krautrock albums had been produced, not to mention Kraftwerk's Autobahn. Devo possessed none of the trademark ethereality of the Eno and Bowie collaborations, but neither were they truly in line with the movement they were most often lumped into, punk. Instead, they existed in some phantom dimension between the two, a place where jagged, abrasive blasts of sound coexisted with pop hooks, and where highbrow sci-fi and lowbrow sci-fi became one. And they found yet another celebrity fan, not one as obvious as Bowie, Neil Young. The tattered, flannel-wearing folk rocker, who, incidentally, had written the definitive song about the Kent State shootings, Ohio, by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, became enamored of Devo. In 1978, he tapped them to co-star and provide part of the score for his film Human Highway, a shaggy comedy about the imminent nuclear apocalypse. It wasn't to see the light of day or the darkness of theaters until 1982, by which point Devo had become almost as iconic as Young himself. We were all basically aliens, alienated aliens, who happened to be in Akron through accidents of birth, Casale said in 1978. Devo is like the science of music or the science of creativity. Any information can be plugged into, mutated, or spit out, which is all our songs are. At this point, we're merely punk scientists doing our research. Jason Heller is an author, journalist, and Hugo Award-winning editor, whose writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, Pitchfork, and NPR.org. His latest book is Strange Stars, David Bowie, Pop Music, and the Decade Sci-Fi Exploded. He's also a DJ and plays guitar in the post-punk band Weathered Statues. He lives in Denver. You can find more of him at jasonhellerauthor.com and on Twitter at Jason M. Heller. 
And that's going to do it for today's episode. Denver Orbit is produced by me with help from Shannon Geis. It's also edited and sound designed by me as well. And we'll see you again in less than two weeks. Surrender forfeit. Did I hear something bad?